Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 53. I'm going to take a break from Matthew over the summer and hang out in the Psalms for a little bit. We've done this a few summers. We started at one and we got to 53, so good job, everybody. Um, Using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 475. As will become clear, uh, just in a quick reading of this psalm, this psalm talks a lot about sin. And as I was thinking about the sermon this week, I kept coming back to this idea that sin and what we believe about sin is one of these foundational beliefs. You know, one of the things that I struggle with just for so long is, is when you finally get someone to say, well, what do you believe? And you almost don't even know where to start. And as I ponder that question, I think part of the answer has to be that we believe sin is real. Our statement of faith, the 10 statements that summarize what we believe, includes talking about the reality of sin. Reading from the article, The Human Condition, we believe that God has created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sin when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. This is a foundational truth to all of human existence, is that all people are made in the image of God and deserving of all dignity and respect, and also that all people are sinners by nature and by choice. Again, this idea of sin is foundational to all people, to who you are. But in addition to being foundational, I also came back to this idea that the Bible is very clear about sin. And I think one of the unique parts of this psalm is the direct and repetitive clarity of this psalm. And I think we need to wrestle with this fact that if we're honest with ourselves... The idea of sin is very clear. You know, some have said that sin is the only part of our theology that can be empirically proven. One only needs to watch the news or watch your neighbor or watch yourself to see sin in the world. So as we turn to Psalm 53, we're going to have a clear look at what God says about sin and us as sinners and what it looks like living in a world where all people sin. The last thing I want to say before we jump into the text is that Psalm 53 is almost a complete carbon copy of Psalm 14. If you want to look at that later this week, go for it. But let's turn to Psalm 53, beginning in verse Verse 1, we're going to go verses 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. 
doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now let's begin verse 1 there. It says, The fool in his heart, fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's sort of two types of fools in the Bible. One is that foolishness is not necessarily the same as sin. It's the result of ignorance and that one must learn so that one may not continue to be a fool. But there's also a sense in the Bible where foolishness is tightly linked with sin, and this is an example of sinful foolishness. In this example, it is foolish for any person to declare there is no God. Utilizing the book of Romans, which I'll do later, and you'll see why in a bit, But as a part of Paul's argument in Romans, he points out why it's foolish to say there is no God. Romans 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 20 says this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The Bible's pretty clear that it is foolish to see the grandeur and complexity of creation and to then deny the existence of God. The grandeur of the mountains to the complexity of the human eye, to look at those and to say there is no God is sinful foolishness. But not only are people fools, David continues, they are corrupt. Doing abominable iniquity, there is none who does good. Those who deny and reject God are sinners by nature and by choice. No one is inherently good. You know, since the Psalms are poetry, there's, there's often neat poetic language embedded in the Psalms. One example here is that word corrupt used at the end of of verse 1 there. It's a rare word in the Bible and it comes from a related word meaning to make sour. Our sin is like sour milk, milk that is rotten. Our hearts in that way are corrupted, spoiled. But again, David doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 2 with God's view of people. Look at verse 2 with me. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. The picture, the poetic picture, is of God looking down from his throne in heaven to observe humankind. It calls to mind the story of the Tower of Babel where God looks down and sees the sinfulness of man. And God's summary of his, of his inquiries found in verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
we need to appreciate the repetitive language of totality in this passage. What began in verse 1, there is none who does good, continues in this verse, but they have all fallen away. There is none who does good, not even one. This is that clarity I spoke of earlier. The Bible makes it clear that there are no exceptions to this rule. As Romans 3.23 famously summarizes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no wiggle room on this, and the repetition of this psalm helps us to see that. All people, no exceptions, are sinners. Now, there's two main branches of application here. I'm going to talk about the first one now, and then when I come back to verses 4 and 5 in the next verses, I'm going to talk about that second branch of application. So, if these verses sounded familiar, especially when I started quoting from Romans, there's a good reason for that. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, the beginning of Romans chapter 3, quotes this psalm. Paul is making this argument in verses 1 through 3 that all are sinners in need of salvation. So he says in Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And what follows from there in chapter 3 of Romans is a chain of Old Testament quotations, including Psalm 53. Foundational to our faith is the belief that all people are sinners by nature and by choice. And if you have never accepted Jesus by faith, you are a sinner. And if you have accepted Jesus by faith, you are a forgiven sinner. And if we don't understand the bad news of the Bible, then we will not understand the good news of the Bible. You see, one of the reasons that I think that sin is foundational is because our understanding of our own sinfulness changes everything else we believe. So, for example, unless you understand you are a sinner, you will never see your need for a Savior. Because what do you need saved from? If sin is not real, then the Bible doesn't make any sense. If you're not actually a sinner in need of salvation, then you don't need Jesus because you're not a sinner. Do you see how it unravels? Theologian H. Richard Niebuhr spoke of a a brand of Christianity this way. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. If sin isn't real, if sin isn't a problem, well then, what did Jesus do on the cross? Do you see, if that, if that goes away, it, everything else unravels like a sweater. 
But again, the Bible is clear. All of us are sinners. And therefore, all of us need Jesus. Another way we need to apply this is that a knowledge of sin kills pride and cultivates humility. If we recognize that we are sinners who are only saved by grace and the mercy of God, then it's hard to be prideful. We become prideful when we believe our own lies that we are good and we deserve God's grace. Or we think of ourselves as good and, you know, well, there's those sinners over there. And proper humility allows us to care for others. You're not going to care for others if you don't understand your own sinfulness. Because you won't be humble and you therefore won't be generous. It's only when I know that I am a sinner in need of a Savior and that I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then I am able to love and serve others. And thirdly, when we know we are forgiven sinners, then we will forgive others. This is related to humility. But if you're honest about the fact that Jesus forgave your sin, then it makes it possible for you to forgive others. People who cannot forgive often have forgotten that they themselves were forgiven. So one of my favorite verses, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You need to understand that you have a sin problem. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're a forgiven sinner. And this side of heaven, that is going to be true. And and one day the glory of being completely set free from sin will be ours. But beware the problem of forgetting your own sinfulness. That's when pride comes in. That's when stinginess comes in. That's when not caring about your neighbors sneaks in. That's when not being able to forgive because you've forgotten that you've been forgiven. Yes, we are forgiven sinners, but we need to keep that at the center of our hearts because it'll transform us to be more like our Savior who we need. Now let's look at that second application. So that's one application. Again, Paul quotes Psalm 53 in Romans chapter 3 where his argument is all of us have sinned and therefore all of us need Jesus. But then in verses 4 to 5 of Psalm 53, David picks up on this problem. If all people are sinners, that means our world is full of sinners. And how do you live in a world of wickedness? How do you live in a world with 7 billion sinners? 
Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. How do you live in a world full of unrepentant sinners? We see described in verses 4 and 5 that these are sinners who have rejected God, who have not repented, and who are pictured as causing harm to God's people. Right? Look how they're described. They are those who work evil and who eat up my people as they eat bread, and those who do not call upon God. How do you live in a world full of people who do evil and who attack and persecute God's people? Now, I'm going to come back to the terror where there is no terror in a second. All right? So let's jump to the end of the verse there. So verse 5, For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. You know, one of the helpful things of the Old Testament is often we have these concrete physical expressions of spiritual truth. So the people win against their enemies. You put them to shame. But it is God who has caused the victory, for God has rejected them. In this instance, we're to picture Israel's enemies encamped against them. And in a world full of unrepentant sinners and full of people who've rejected God, it is often that we can feel surrounded like there is an army encamped against us. What hope do we have? Well, part of that answer here in Psalm 53 is we can trust in God's justice. That one day God will scatter the bones of those who have rejected him because he has rejected them. Now notice in verse 5 it says, you put them to shame. The picture is of a military victory, but we must see that any victories we experience are because of the Lord. Because right after it says, you put them to shame, the reason is, is that God has rejected them. Now with that in mind, let's go back to the first part of the verse. Okay, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. I want to connect this to a story from 2 Kings chapter 7. In this context of, of God fighting for his people and that any victory or expression of justice is a gift from the God. And in a story found in 2 Kings 7, the, the Israel is under siege by the Syrians. And the Syrians are encamped around them. Let me read you a slightly longer passage from 2 Kings chapter 7. 
And we're introduced, while this is going on, we're introduced to some characters, these four men with leprosy. So, 2 Kings chapter 7. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. And so they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. This story is a picture of this promise from the Psalms. That God fights for his people and specifically that they will have terror where there is no terror. God caused them to hear the sounds of an army that wasn't there. And so they all just left. Now part of that is it's pretty obvious Israel did nothing to save itself. The story doesn't say, and Israel made a lot of noise so that the Syrians got scared and ran away. God saved his people from the foes that have encamped around them. And living in a world where all people are sinners by nature and by choice, we have a God who fights for us. A God who protects us, that we can hope in his justice and his care. This moves us to the last verse of the psalm. Knowing that all are sinners and that God's justice is true and reliable, we now see that salvation is available for sinners. Look at verse 6 with me. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Not only do we have the hope of God's justice and God fighting for his people, we have the hope of God's salvation. Now this is in the book of Psalms. This is in the Old Testament. And so David cries for future salvation. He is hoping in a salvation that would come out of Zion. Zion is the mountain upon which the city of Jerusalem sits. And what David hoped in, we know happened. Our salvation truly did come from Zion. Our salvation truly did come from Jerusalem. Jesus Christ didn't lead an army. 
But he died on a cross and rose again so that any sinner who repents and believes will be saved. You know, this last part of the verse speaks to the future and present realities of our salvation. You know, because we are saved by Jesus, we have the future hope of his return, where he will make all things right, or as the psalm says, restores the fortunes of his people. All of the injustice you have experienced, all of the hurt and the sin you have experienced, one day God will make all things new and all things right when Jesus returns. And because of this, because of this hope in the future, we can have joy and gladness today. Because God has saved sinners, he has not left us in our sin. And because we have the hope of his justice and the hope of eternal life, we can, with the psalmist, say, let God's people rejoice. Let God's people be glad. In a world full of sin, you can have joy and gladness because you have the hope of eternal life. In a world full of sin, you can have joy and gladness because your sins are forgiven through Jesus. And you can have joy and gladness that one day Jesus will return and make all things good. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, all have sinned. We believe sin is real, and the Bible, again, is not ambiguous about this. Again, all of the nuns and the alls and everyone. Again, go back and read through Romans where, where Paul quotes Psalm 53. It's, you don't have to be a genius to see it. It's true. It's true about people out in the world. It's true about us. We're sinners by nature and by choice. There's no exception to the rule. And you're only a fool to not admit that that's true. Confess your sin and find forgiveness today. And when you believe that, again, I I promise it can transform your life. When you're real about your own sin and your own forgiveness, you're able to be humble and generous, and forgiving. And we're not those things when we forget that just like everybody else, we needed to be forgiven and we needed a Savior. Secondly, God fights for his people. Verses 4 and 5 are the big difference between Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. That's why I said they're almost a carbon copy. The difference is verses 4 and 5. The unique part of Psalm 53 is this idea of God fighting for his people. Again, picture the Syrians encamped against Israel, and Israel does nothing to save itself. That is us and our Lord. 
we can trust in God's justice and his goodness. And finally, there is salvation for sinners through Jesus Christ. God has provided for a Savior out of Zion. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise again so that all who repent of their sins and place their trust in him will be saved. And because of that salvation, we can have hope in the future when Jesus returns to make all things new. And you can have hope and joy and gladness today because of that salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. That we would be honest that all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. That there is no exception. And that we would live as forgiven sinners who are kind and compassionate and humble. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be forgiven through Jesus Christ. You have set us free from sin. And that we would trust in your justice and trust in the hope of eternal life. That we would live today, even in a world full of sin, that we would live lives of joy and gladness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.